If you went on a road trip and you didn't stop for a Big Mac or drop a crispy fry between the car seats or use your McDonald's bag as a placemat, then that wasn't a road trip. It was just a really long drive. At participating McDonald's. Tonight on Revolt Black News Weekly. I mean, these are some cold, calculating criminals. Two black men beaten and sexually assaulted by police, and one of them shot in the mouth. After firing a shot through one of the victim's mouths, they left him lying in a pool of blood. All over reports of them dating white women. Throughout the course of this two-hour ordeal, they continuously called them n- and monkeys. This is a hate crime. Will there be justice in Rankin County, Mississippi? There's going to be an intense campaign to hold these criminals accountable. You have a black male teacher. That goes a long way for a young black man. The number of black male teachers is the lowest it's been in decades. When I had African-American teachers, I had someone that I could relate to a lot more. How our children are paying the price. Within like the last five years, we've seen rises in all of the STDs, and it's concerning. STDs are rising to alarming numbers in the black community. This first person that I've ever been with ended up giving me a sexual transmitted disease. My life has been terrible. Is safe sex a thing of the past? At the end of the day, people are having sex because it's enjoyable. But here goes, we need to educate them on how to live their life in a way that's safe. All that and more as the Black News Revolution starts right now. Welcome to the show, everyone. I'm Mara S. Campo. We return tonight to Rankin County, Mississippi, where six white officers recently pled guilty to violently attacking Michael Jenkins and Eddie Parker. The men were beaten and tortured, and police used a sex toy to assault them. And there's the bombshell allegation that the racist reason behind the attack all boiled down to the victims dating white women. They became the criminals they swore to protect us from. Guilty. That's what six officers pled in the heinous racist assaults on 32-year-old Michael Jenkins and 35-year-old Eddie Parker on a dark night in Rankin County, Mississippi. No white police officer in the history of the state of Mississippi has ever served jail time or prison time for harming a black person. A motivating factor in the attack alleged in a $400 million civil suit, accusations that the black men were targeted for, quote, dating white women and committing, quote, other racial violations. They were clear that they were there and conducting this torture because Jenkins and Parker allegedly had been dating white women. And throughout the course of this two-hour ordeal, they continuously called them n- and monkeys. This is a hate crime. On the night of January 24th, six white former law enforcement officers, a self-described goon squad, entered the home of Eddie Parker and Michael Jenkins without a warrant after a white neighbor reported the two black men for suspicious behavior. For hours, the officers tortured Jenkins and Parker with waterboarding and tasers. And in one of the most explosive revelations, the sadistic deputies attempted to use a sex toy to violate both men before forcing it into Jenkins' mouth. They attempted to do that to him from the rear, but Michael Jenkins was so terrified that he defecated on himself and they were unable to do it. Then they forced him to clean it up 
by stripping them naked and them going in and showering uh, naked, facing that kind of humiliation in front of these criminals. As detailed in a federal court document filed July 31st, the night culminated with Deputy Elward putting his revolver in Michael Jenkins' mouth and firing, lacerating his tongue and shattering his jaw. I'm, I'm still going through pain right now. My whole face, no, my mouth hurting right now. Let me speak. The five Rankin deputies, Christian Dedman, Hunter Elward, Jeffrey Middleton, Daniel Opdyke, and Brett McAlpin, and Richland police officer Joshua Hartfeld made sure to turn off their body cameras so there would be no record of the horrific abuse that unfolded in the four-bedroom ranch-style home located in Braxton, about 30 miles south of Jackson. After inflicting serious bodily injury by firing a shot through one of the victim's mouths, they left him lying in a pool of blood, gathered on the porch of the house to discuss how to cover it up. What indifference, what disregard for life. Three of the six guilty officers say they called themselves the Goon Squad because of their willingness to use excessive force and not report it, according to a federal complaint. It's very horrendous how they, they can call themselves a you know, Goon Squad and you know, still uh, put on a badge and say they're protecting people. In addition to shutting off their body cameras, the men continued the cover-up by destroying a hard drive containing surveillance footage into a nearby creek disposing of the men's bloody clothes in the woods and planting evidence, including methamphetamine and a BB gun, which led to felony charges against Parker and Jenkins. The charges have since been dropped. When Hunter Elward, the lead criminal, went back to the police station, he filled out a notarized affidavit saying that Michael Jenkins had pointed a gun at him and that's why he had shot Jenkins, but it was a planted gun. And this may not be the first time they've done this. Investigators allege that several of the deputies have had at least four other violent encounters with black men, leaving two people dead. Two of them involved shoving guns into the mouths of black men. I mean, these are some cold, calculating criminals, but they're also some of the stupidest deputies in the history of law enforcement. On August 3rd, each of the defendants pleaded guilty in federal court to 16 felonies, including civil rights conspiracy, deprivation of rights under color of law, discharge of a firearm during a crime of violence, conspiracy to obstruct justice, and obstruction of justice. I'm astounded. I'm, I'm, I'm real happy that it's, it's finally come to a point where they're getting, uh, you know, getting a, a, a feeling of what they, uh, what they dish out to people, you know, day in, day out. On the same day the former officers pleaded guilty to federal charges, State Attorney General Lynn Fitch announced her office had also filed charges of aggravated assault, home invasion, obstruction of justice, hindering prosecution in the first degree, and conspiracy to commit obstruction of justice, hinder prosecution. I believe in my heart that this department remains one of the best departments in our state, and I'm committed to doing everything in my power to keep this department on a correct path moving forward. Since the attack, Sheriff Bailey has been caught up in his own controversy. Reports allege he misused his power to subpoena phone records in order to spy on his married girlfriend. But just this month, he was re-elected to serve another term. Your leadership equals bad leadership. So we're asking that you step down. There are calls from the community for him to resign. On August 14th, all six defendants pled guilty to the state charges, likely facing five to 30 years in prison.
Sentencing for the former officers, now convicted criminals, was recently postponed by a federal judge, and attorney Shabazz says he hopes they will finally face full justice in December. We're honored and happy that we have been able to achieve these results. However, we're hard-nosed, and we understand justice is still in the balance. There's going to be an intense campaign to hold these criminals accountable. Once we had started attacking this case, they absolutely ran into the wrong forces of justice because we out to justice and by God's grace, we get justice. There's more coming up after the break. Who needs an alarm in the morning when McDonald's has sausage, egg, and cheese McGriddles and a breakfast cutoff? Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. At a time when black students are making up larger percentages of public school populations, less than 2% of public school teachers are black men. That lack of black male representation often means the difference between success and failure for our children. Tonight, Revolt Black News examines what's keeping black men out of the classroom. First few years of my schooling, um, blackness was centered and radically so. And the last shoot 20 years of my education you see this sort of violent sort of extraction this violent separation for all cultures that aren't white and i started to feel like i wasn't smart i wasn't intelligent amir davis is on a mission to change the face of education for this generation of students the expectation is that we do not go into especially if you're a black male you do not go into um, education you know, because success is defined by not only title and prestige, but also the money that you earn. I knew once I got into the classroom and I taught and I saw the impact I was having on my students, I knew that's what I was designed to do. But in 2019, Davis walked away from his calling, frustrated by bureaucracy and school districts resistant to change. I saw that no matter how hard I worked and the good that I felt I can do inside of my classroom, that there was this sort of system that I had to exist in that was, um, in my mind, noticeably and um, arrogantly ignoring the plight of my students. And he's not alone. Last year, nearly 50% of black teachers planned to leave their jobs at the end of the year, double the national average. And today, just 1.3% of teachers are black men. Troubling statistics since studies show that black children do better with black teachers. Scholars believe the absence of black men from the classroom today can be traced back to 1954 and a Supreme Court case that desegregated America's schools. Georgia Tech professor Dr. Joycelyn Wilson. One of the things that took place during Brown versus Board of Education when black teachers and black leadership was removed from the schools and replaced with white teachers and white leadership. This notion that Black schools under the era of segregation were a bad thing is really just 
that's just wholly inaccurate. The schools was just the place that were that was used to exemplify the need to get rid of racial discrimination and segregation. So to desegregate is literally to eliminate any type of systemic racism, institutionalized racism, any type of um, discrimination based on race in these public schools. That's what desegregation is. Integration is literally bringing the races together in one space to learn together. Back to those unintended consequences, one of them was the anti-Black curriculum. The curriculum was not desegregated. The curriculum was not integrated. That is where we have to continue to do the work to make sure that the work that has been done around culturally relevant, culturally resilient teaching, we have to continue to make sure that that is not dismantled. In Montgomery, Alabama, one school is giving young black men a new educational experience. It was only when I got to Valiant Cross when I started having more uh, African-American teachers. Valiant Cross, a 6th through 12th grade private school, opened its doors eight years ago. Valiant Cross is a place where young men are provided the opportunity to grow and thrive. And unlike many schools in the country, unapologetically, most of the teachers are black men. Anthony Brock is the school's founder. When you have a black male teacher, representation matters. You know, uh, one of the biggest things is that there's some shared experiences that we had as black men. But in school, oftentimes, I would be taught by teachers who, although they were good teachers, had good hearts, sometimes the cultural relevant piece was not there. And so when I had those teachers that I could pull aside and talk to, or they could say, hey, I understand this or understand that about what you're experiencing in life, that goes a long way for a, a young black man. 100% of students at Valiant Cross graduate and 95% go on to higher education or the military. I know that from some of my classmates, they're making their mark with their colleges, like uh, our valedictorian Noah. He's in at Morehouse doing a great job. One of the class of 2022s, um, he's part of the Elite 100 at Troy University. So see, having those black teachers really showed us what we're capable of. Zion Hall graduated from Valiant Cross Academy in 2022 and now attends Lemoyne Owens College on a golf scholarship. Feels really good, feels rewarding. Um, you know, that's greater than any result. I was at a conference this past week and one of the first questions the people, somebody asked me, like, tell me about y'all's results, how are your kids doing? I don't want to quantify, put a, put a number on what they've done. Just look at the results, look at where they are. Those are the only results you need. But I do understand and I think that, that we need to figure out ways to attract more men to the profession. And I think we need to start actually before they get in college, we need to start in the high school uh, age group and start recruiting those young men. Though he left the classroom, Amir Davis couldn't leave education behind. He too wanted to help create a solution. Now he continues his work as director of black male engagement at the Center for Black Educator Development. He's using his experience to reshape the culture within schools. We identify our high schoolers through college. Those are the pivotal points where you can really insert the idea that you can be a teacher who does great revolutionary work inside the classroom. 
The organization's goal is to create at least 500 black teachers in the next two years and reshape the culture within schools. We want to be known for our achievement and our skill, amongst other things, but when you see us, you see us. The most successful black male teachers are those that have a network of folks who have shared experiences, shared aspirations, and can push one another to, uh, to persist in this profession. Two black men with a love for education, making a way for a new generation. When I had African-American teachers, I had someone that I could relate to a lot more. Someone, seeing someone that was the same color as me in position of authority or that teacher position, it was a big difference seeing uh, African-American men and women uh, in that life. I feel good when I hear somebody say that they know we loved on them. Like that's better than any test score. That's the fruit of your labor right there. We'll be right back. If you went on a road trip and you didn't stop for a Big Mac or drop a crispy fry between the car seats or use your McDonald's bag as a placemat, then that wasn't a road trip. It was just a really long drive. At participating McDonald's. Welcome back. In the 80s, a diagnosis of HIV seemed like a certain death sentence. People were terrified and safe sex was preached like gospel. Well now, just a few decades later, HIV is managed like a chronic disease and nobody seems to be scared anymore. Has that lack of fear made safe sex a thing of the past? Viral videos from this year's Mocha Fest in Houston that are so shocking, we can't fully show them. I like to encourage people to break away from normative views on sex and relationships leading them to sexual freedom. Sarah Taylor, a nurse, and multiple other people openly performing oral sex during a pool party in broad daylight. But Black Twitter wasn't having it. Users posting comments like, it should be called Disease Fest, and this is exactly why STDs are at an all-time high. And they're not wrong. STDs are at an all-time high, climbing for six years in a row to 2.6 million in 2019. The CDC saying the epidemic shows no signs of slowing. So... In my 12 years of being a doctor, we have steadily been seeing a rise in sexually transmitted infections, especially in communities of color. And especially within like the last five years, we've seen rises in all of the STDs and it's concerning. In just one year from 2020 to 2021, gonorrhea and chlamydia increased 4%. Found out that this first person that I've ever been with ended up giving me a sexual transmitted disease. And now that I have it, my life has been terrible. And syphilis, which was almost completely wiped out in the 90s, is now back like baggy jeans, surging 32% in just one year to its highest level in 70 years. We are definitely seeing a rise in syphilis. It can actually go into your brain and cause a lot of like issues neurologically in terms of your balance, your memory, like just blindness, all kinds of things. And what we're seeing is that it's definitely on the rise 
in the Black community. There's even a rise in throat cancers caused by HPV, the virus that causes genital warts. And the Black community is being hit the hardest, with STD rates five to eight times higher than for white people. Black people have the highest rates of HIV infection, and Black women make up the majority of new HIV infections among women. My name is Jason Pander. I'm the founder and um, owner of B Condoms the only Black-owned condom company. Jason Panda left the cushy comforts of corporate law to try and address the racial disparities in sexual health. This how you see our condoms are made, the best condoms in the world. We produce nearly 2 billion condoms a year. I think for all of the negative kind of statistical analysis and statistical information that we have, I also see a huge opportunity to really be able to provide equity as it relates to STDs, right? And how we're able to do that is Number one, education, right? I think we, we must find a way to, ele to educate and to elevate the message in a way that connects, right? That's what I try to do with our social media. It may be edgy, but you have like been in other characters, <laughs> not in costume. Though. But I would be open to the costume. I think we have to work on stigma. We've become too factionalized, right? You'll have LGBT, you'll have black women, you'll have black men, everybody working in their own little cocoons, right? And there's not, not enough crossover across communication to really allow us to be able to move as one unit, right? So why are we seeing these increases? In the 90s and into the 2000s, safe sex messages were everywhere. People were terrified of getting HIV and dying from AIDS. I'm not gay, so I can't get it right. But advances in medicine changed everything, transforming HIV into a manageable chronic illness. I was diagnosed at three. And the doctor said I wouldn't live past the age of five. I just turned 30. So that goes to show that there is hope now. The medications are better than ever. It's been some great moments, but also some tough moments. And I think that's what the blessing is of my life. Prominent figures sharing their stories of living with HIV, not dying from it. Then came incredibly effective preventative drugs like PrEP, reducing HIV transmission by 99%. HIV infection rates overall stabilized and then dropped, and so did a lot of fear. How many times you a week? Like on a good week? I know maybe 10? Ten what? Time. Ten times a week? You said ten times a week with different people. It's exhilarating. Mm. It is absolutely exhilarating. Doctors say there are other factors, too. The pandemic made it harder for people to get tested and know their status and put a strain on medical services overall. Also adding to high STD numbers, a new era of sexual freedom fueled by online dating and easy hookups and the growing use of recreational drugs like methamphetamines and opioids, both of which can lead to riskier sexual behavior. Oh, aren't you on the pill? Yeah. So why do we need this? I feel people are not as scared anymore about HIV, especially with PrEP and just in general, like when I was a teenager and a young adult, saw TLC with the condoms draped all over them. We're not seeing that as much in popular culture. Although I see patients with HIV all the time and it's still something that we're seeing, especially women of color, black women coming in with new cases of it all the time. The end goal is how do we move forward as a more 
we can own our sexuality, we can own our sexual health, we can enjoy it because at the end of the day, people are having sex because it's enjoyable. People want a climax, like, and there's nothing wrong with that. But here goes, we need to educate them on how to live their life in a way that's safe and in a way that helps us move forward as a community and as a people. To continue this topic, I spoke with sexologist Michelle Hope and Dr. Cedric Pulliam, senior advisor to the Office of Infectious Disease and HIV AIDS Policy, and we discussed what's fueling this dangerous rise in sexually transmitted diseases. Dr. Pulliam, I want to start with you because we've seen increases in rates of almost every STD when it seemed that for quite some time we were making a lot of progress. What's happening? Although there is a lot of progress, what we have to realize is that during the COVID-19 pandemic, people still was having plentiful amounts of sex. One thing that we really didn't account for is with people having sex and with COVID happening and the pandemic happening and many health services being staggered or somewhat closed even, testing services and things of that nature being uh, very strict in the sense of who can come. All of these elements counter into what we are seeing now in the epidemiological data showcasing higher STD rates, specifically in the Black community. During the 90s, and of course during the 80s, HIV and AIDS seem like a death sentence. And now we are in some ways a little bit uh, victims of our own success because HIV, people know to be a very treatable condition that they can live a very long, healthy life with. Do you think that there's a psychological component that people are just not that scared and that's why we're not seeing enough you know, safe sex. What we're not seeing is a road to sex education that can give young people access to information, um, opportunities to practice conversation and communication. If we do not provide pathways for young people to get a education on sex and sexuality, that it is medically accurate, that is infirming, and that is inclusive, we are leaving them up to figure it out on their own. And there is a lot of disinformation on the internet, which is where they're turning. You know, condom use, the, and these are always self-reported numbers, but those who report using condoms, the number was 75% um, in 2011. Now it's dropped to about 42%. So why do you think we're seeing that? We all got real comfortable and we stopped talking about the basic and most effective part of preventing unplanned pregnancy, preventing STIs, which is condom use. And then when it comes to condom use, if you don't know and don't have the skill set to have a conversation with your partner, like I'm not doing if, if it ain't protected, we ain't doing it. Right. Those are conversations that even as adults, people have to practice because it can get uncomfortable. Someone might say, well, I thought you cared about me. You don't trust me. That is why sex education is needed, not only for young people, but also for adults. So we can practice having those conversations about our status and about what type of protection we're going to be using. How do you make someone care when they say, well, if I get this, yeah. I can just treat it with an antibiotic. Who cares? How do you get them to care about what a lot of people consider to be the lesser STDs? The lesser STDs are still vitally important because they must be treated. If left untreated, those symptoms and conditions to your health can exacerbate tremendously, especially over time. 
I've witnessed this personally with, you know, doing health services in the community. And again, during the COVID pandemic, people saw this quite a bit, especially in the Board of Health throughout Georgia. I think what we have to realize is that just like any other health condition, untreated diabetes, uh, congestive heart failure, kidney failure, dialysis, or any of these things that are around our health, if they're left untreated, they only get worse. And that's exactly what we have to equate, regardless if it has a treatment or if it has a remedy. Just like if you think of genital herpes or herpes in general, regardless of which type of herpes you get, it's an STI, but it's something that's for your whole life. Michelle, a lot of the increases that we're seeing are in young people. And there seems to have been, over the last few years, this, this move towards more sex positivity. Is part of what we're seeing a cultural shift among young people who are embracing their sexual freedom more, but not necessarily the safe sex that should come along with it? The hot tea is this. Culturally, we have moved much quicker than our legislative process has allowed us. And currently, we are seeing the regressive minority the far right continue to push us in a direction that pushes out ideology that shames sex and sex education in the classroom, as well as honest curriculum teachings. If we're not giving young people that don't have a clue accurate information, we are setting them up for failure. And this is why we are seeing STI skyrocket. The rates for STDs in the Black community are an estimated five to eight times that for whites. And when it comes to HIV infections, Black women make up the biggest group of new infections among women. So how do we tackle this problem specifically in the Black community, doctor? We must begin talking and educating ourselves. HIV prevention, methodologies, whether it's pre-exposure prophylaxis or PrEP, they are for Black women. They are for all types of genders, all types of sexual orientations. And we have to start having conversations because PrEP, for Black women, the percentage is very low nationally in the United States. Because I think uh, people think of PrEP as something for men who have sex with men. They don't necessarily think of it as something for you know, a woman who's, who exclusively dates men to use. So do you think the, the messaging is getting through that this is an option and that it's actually a very effective preventative protective option? The advertising and marketing strategy of pharmaceutical companies in the beginning of pre-exposure prophylaxis or PrEP was very targeted to gay men or men who have sex with men. And it had went that way for a very long time until we started seeing actual women in commercials. Most women in general, especially those that could be married, probably have not been asked to get a, a, a HIV or full panel STI test in over a decade or more. And that's because the medical system and these doctors are almost programmed to say, well, this is not an issue for a married person. Whereas it really is. You should always be in your once a year or twice a year physicals with your doctor, you should be getting tested for HIV too. Michelle, if you had to talk to especially young people who want to embrace their sexuality, they want to have fun, but they want to do it in a safe way. So what would you say? We need parents to get real about the fact that their children are having sex, the fact that their children may be non-binary, the fact that their children may be gay. And I need you to recognize our current political system is trying to not only roll back sex education, but also access to care. Young people, have all the fun you want, 
use a condom and start demanding that you are given the resources and education in schools that you go to. Sexuality is a part of your everyday life and it is not always about the act of sex. And if we don't do something now, we are going to continue to suffer as a community. So I, you could be mad at me, you could think I'm a cuckoo crazy, but somebody gotta do it. Well, it sounds like you're crazy about our people and about keeping us healthy. And there's nothing better to be nuts about. So thank you for your passion uh, when it comes to this topic. Thank you, Michelle. Thank you, Dr. Pulliam. We really appreciate your perspective. Stay with us. There's more Revolt Black News Weekly coming up after the break. Hey there. Ever thought about what makes your heart beat a little faster? Oh, you mean like when you discover a new track that just speaks to you? Yeah. Or finding a movie that you can't stop thinking about? Well, get ready to feel that excitement all over again because Amazon Prime is here to take your entertainment and shopping experience to the next level. Absolutely. Prime isn't just about getting your packages quicker. It's about diving into a world of endless possibilities, from the latest releases to exclusive content you won't find anywhere else. And don't even get me started on the music. Prime offers concert specials that will transport you right to the front room. It's like being at the hottest gigs without leaving your living room. I use Prime to tap in with some of my favorite artists' live shows from any and every genre of music. Trust me, Prime is a game changer. It's like having a personalized superstore and entertainment hub right at your fingertips. So why wait? Head over to Amazon.com forward slash Prime and start experiencing entertainment like never before. There's one more story we want you to see. This is Stand Up For, presented by State Farm. Food means power, nourishment, sustenance. To be able to even to grow your own food gives you that sense of belonging. And so food for me is very powerful and it should be a right for all people. My name is Karen Washington. I tell people I'm a farmer. I grow food. I feed people body, mind, and spirit. And I've been growing food for over 38 years and counting. I think it is a gift to be able to grow food and to feed people. So I try to do that each and every day. I have run the gamut of organizing community gardens, being part of an educational school called Farm School, uh, starting a conference called Black Urban Growers. Welcome to the farmer's market. Get your fresh vegetables. We grow them, you eat them. I just want to try to put a dent in hunger and poverty because, you know, we live in the United States, the greatest country in the world, and yet there's hunger and poverty. And I just, I don't understand it. So I'm out there continue to fight that battle. We never, never turn away anyone who's hungry. So yeah, if you're hungry and you need food, this is the place you need to be. I had great memories growing up. Uh, was family of four. It was me, my brother, my father, and uh, my mother. We lived in the projects, Jacob Reese Houses, 10th Street and Avenue D. And I had such a great childhood. We didn't even know what hunger or poverty was all about. My mom was a good cook. She was a slamming good cook. And there were certain things that you look forward to as a Black person that had to have the collard greens, mac and cheese. The bug for growing food got to me when I moved to the Bronx. I bought a house, had a backyard, didn't know what to do with it. And then across the street was an empty lot. 
got the nudge with neighbors and turned those empty lots into community gardens. And I decided I want to grow three things, a tomato, collard greens, and eggplant. And it was a tomato that changed my world. It was red, it was juicy, and what? I wanted to grow everything after that. And what it did, it just changed the complexion of the neighborhood. So you no longer were surrounded by garbage and debris. You were surrounded by flowers and trees and it made your neighborhood welcoming. It, 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 was, it became a safe haven, especially for our elders and for our children. And I think for so long doing this work, we have lost the framework of agriculture. We have lost the culture of growing food and community gardens were the essence of that. Girls, are y'all hungry? New York City now has over 400 community gardens. And then I think what the major change that I've seen having community gardens, but school gardens. My farm, my heart is Rise and Root Farm. So it's four women. We come from community gardens. So our trademark is that we traded our Metro cars for tractors. We're in our ninth year. We are in Chester, New York, which is the black dirt region, literally black dirt. So we grow the best vegetables and the best herbs. So it has been a blessing because there is that relationship from our past of community gardens and urban agriculture, now rural agriculture, but we never left that connection. Those tomatoes, how do you eat them? Just slice them. You just, and eat them regular? Just eat them regular. So we still grow food for people in New York City. All right, have a blessed day. You too, darling. As a matter of fact, every year we've been able to plant the starts for all the community gardens in New York City. So we have community days once a month so that people in the city can come up and see exactly what we're doing. I grow food. I feed people's body and mind. I started to question the food system and I started to look at neighborhoods like mine and see the food that was in my neighborhood and my friends who are white to go in their neighborhoods and see how their food was. And I started to be very, very vocal and really got into advocacy. So I'm here today because I got a message to bring that I'm sick and tired of being sick and tired. But I'm no longer going to stand for the fact that four companies are controlling our food system. The food system is two tiers, haves and have-nots. And then I started to peel back the food system and say, you know, it's doing exactly what it's supposed to do. It's a caste system based on the color of your skin, how much money you make, and where you live. Hi, everybody. So I'm the farmer here at the Garden of Happiness. How many people eat healthy food? What are you not allowed to do? Excellent, eat junk. Come on, let's go see the chicken. They always mention that people in low-income neighborhoods live in food deserts. And that, that term, food desert, just didn't sit well with me because we got food. We got the junk food. We got the processed food. We got the fast food. What we don't have is healthy food options. And I felt that by saying food desert, you really wasn't getting at the heart of the problem. And so I coined the term food apartheid because wait a second, what? All of a sudden people's ears started perking up eyes. Like, what is this term? And I coined that term because I wanted people to really take a hard look at the food system. 
So you know what happens when people eat a lot of stuff with sugar? You feel like get like yeah. diabetes. Diabetes. That's a big word, diabetes. And so. For me, I challenge the food system, and I say the only way the food system is going to change is taking away the power of people who, for so long, have power over others back into the hands of the communities. I'm not going to stand for the fact that the farmer, the family farmer, is being pushed to the side so someone could be making money that's poisoning my people. People always ask me, you know, why do I do this work? And I speak to the ancestors. I said somehow the ancestors set me here to do something for for them not to be forgotten. You know, I can always remember in my head this sort of voice, Karen, don't don't forget us, don't forget us. And I want to make sure that young people don't forget their ancestral lineage. We were the ones that put the seeds in the ground. We were the ones that fed this nation. How many people eat food? They stand on the shoulders that of people Excellent. who built this country. And then I tell them, look at the color of your skin. The color of your skin is soil. You come from a great agrarian group of people. So embrace land. Go back to the land. Have that relationship to the land that I always preach, especially to young people. I, I'll tell you a perfect example. So I was speaking at an event, this woman and her seven-year-old, she said, you know, Miss Washington, you know what my daughter said to me? She says, Ma, one day when I get old, I want to be a farmer. And I never thought in my lifetime that a little black girl would say to her mother, I want to be a farmer. And her mother was, was, was so happy. And I knew I was on the right path of doing something extraordinary. After 2020, we got hit hard financially. It was time to close door. That's where the Black Farmers Fund came in and they assist us so that we can keep going. The organization I have now that's driving me is Black Farmer Fund. First of all, in the United States, Black farmers own only 1% of farmland. And for me, living in New York, out of 57,000 farmers, only 139 are Black. The average farmer here in New York makes white farmer $47,000, a black farmer maybe $900. And so we started this Black Farmer Fund back in 2019. Our first year, we were able to amass over a million dollars. And now we're going for $20 million. And why not? And so with the Black Farmer Fund, we want to meet the farmer and the business where they are. So we'll ask the farmer, what is it we can do to help you succeed? That's number one. And then, you know what, we're going to make it so that periods of time during the year when you don't farm, you don't have to pay. I am enjoying my life. I have a great life. You know, when you're out there on the field and you see what you've grown, you give the Almighty, the Creator, thanks for allowing you to be part of an industry of giving back. It's something for me about growing food and putting my hands in the soil. And so I thank the opportunity for allowing me to be a steward of the land so that I can give back uh, to the land and to nature. All right, we'll be right back. Everybody loves McDonald's fries. 
So yes, you accused your mom of stealing some of your fries on the way home. Um, but the bag did feel a little light. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Well, that wraps it up for us. Remember to stay connected with us on Facebook, Instagram, X, formerly Twitter, Revolt on YouTube, our Revolt Black News podcast, and download the Revolt app. Until next time, good night, everyone. If you went on a road trip and you didn't stop for a Big Mac or drop a crispy fry between the car seats or use your McDonald's bag as a placemat, then that wasn't a road trip. It was just a really long drive. Bada ba ba ba. At participating McDonald's.